Tonight we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 again, and um, I'll give you kind of the outline for what's going to happen tonight. should be up here for us. This is our outline. We'll quickly go through a contextual review of what happened last week, and if you were here last week, it's a real big, don't do this, don't act like this, and don't talk like this, and here are the symptoms of what false teachers that kind of come in. And then we're going to break down this passage between verses 11 and 16 into kind of these parts, and you're thinking, I've heard you before, you'll never get through this, that's not going to happen, I am going to zip through this, because some of these are very small. I just wanted to break it down into these parts, because I liked them all, I enjoyed all of these. And so I wanted to kind of take some time on each one, but we won't overdo any of them. Here was last week, so Pastor Dave gave us this great exegesis on this passage about what these false teachers that can get amongst us, and we've seen this so many times. I mean, even with my teaching in different Sunday school classes, how often does this come up as warnings to us in the epistles? From not just Paul, but Peter as well, and John. All of them exhorting us, telling us to be careful, to look out for false teachers. And I don't want to keep going on that, but we know how to do that, right? We know how to do that. We stay in this. We look at everything through the lens of Scripture. We understand the Word of God because the Holy Spirit allows us to do that, but we're disciplined to do that on a daily basis. And so when we know what it's supposed to be, and we know that something's supposed to be red, and we see green, we know it's wrong, right? It's a simple thing. So we need not be colorblind. We've got the Word of God in front of us. But these are the things that we see last week. What did these false teachers bring into the congregation? What were they doing? What were they looking like? Well, they were teaching doctrines that didn't agree with the Word of God, pure doctrine, giving us the gospel of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ. We see pride and conceit come in. Of course, that's typical. That's normal for a a false teacher, what they're in for, what they're doing it for, what their motivation is, is, certainly in in contrast to ours. This preoccupation with things that don't matter, they kind of highlight things that don't really make a difference. They, they really focus on words and arguing about things that are fringe. So Pastor talked about that last week. And then they cause this friction between believers. I just prayed what Jesus prayed for us in John 17, that we're unified, right? We're unified in the word and truth. We're unified in the faith. We're unified in the fact that we all have the Holy Spirit in us, those of us who have put our faith in Christ. And there is an easy way for false teachers to jump in when they start dissecting this with and, and, and putting into this, almost throwing in, as, as I just mentioned, uh, talking about planting corn, throwing in weed seed in here and manipulating the gospel, which is, of course, blasphemous. And then greedy for gain. This could be money. This could be other things. That was last week. That's all bad news. He gave me, I, I, I was joking with him. We had breakfast a couple days after. I said, man, you, you picked the wrong time because he's, He's jumping into, I'm jumping into the good stuff. He had the bad stuff. Plus, there's a little bit of talking about uh, Pilate's, uh, Jesus and Pilate's conversation, which I know he loves that. He loves to teach that. He, and and I, he said, well, it's okay. I'll, I'll fix it when you mess it up. And so I appreciate that too. All right, let's go into the passage. I know that's a little tough to see, but it's 1 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy, not Corinthians, sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll read the whole passage first, 11 through 16, and then we'll just jump into the verse by verse as we go through this. Let me read the whole thing out, and then we'll take a look at this contrast that what we saw last week and this week are going to be two very different things. Here's what it says. And you notice that I titled this whole section, But As For You. But As For You. We're a little different here. Here's what it says, starting at verse 11. And I love the whole passage. It reads so well. Boy, it's nice to hear the word of God read out loud sometimes. So let me just read it. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, 
To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's a big chunk of stuff I'm going to cover tonight. And you can see it's beautiful, and it's got some great things for us. So let's look at verse 11 one more time. Let's bring this up. Verse 11 starts so well, but as for you. Man, I tell you what, you can't read this passage, and I certainly can't teach it to you without applying it immediately. Application comes from the jump on this one. But as for you, now he is certainly talking to Timothy 2,000 years ago. Absolutely. I, I don't want to take that out of the context. But we know very well he's talking to us. The Holy Spirit has given this to Paul to write to Timothy. And the Holy Spirit would know that 2,000 years later, we would have a body of believers here who are thinking, what about me? But as for me, when you input yourself into this, it makes it very personal. And it should. This book should be personal to you. It should be personal to me. It should be so personal that every time you read it, it makes a change. It clips a little bit off, chisels a little bit off of here, and it turns you into something more like the sun. That's the way it should be. So I just love the way it starts. But as for you, O man of God. So that, that focus on but as for you. I picked up a few others. Christ used that same term. If you look at this in Luke, you don't have to turn there, but feel free to for context. Luke 9, 60. The context of this is he was talking about the cost of discipleship. What does it cost? And you might remember that conversation. Jesus was just kind of reflecting with his apostles. You know, there was a guy who came to me and said, I'll follow you and go anywhere you want me to go. And he said, well, you realize that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes. And he says, but I'm kind of homeless. Are you good with that? And then another said, well, let me bury my father first. You might remember that conversation. And here's what Jesus said. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, he was really not talking about his dad being passed away in the moment. It was talking about waiting for his, his inheritance, if you know the context of that. He said, if you're going to wait, there's no waiting. You're in right now. But as for you, you proclaim the kingdom right now. You start now. So, but as for you is this contrast that we see even Jesus using. Paul says it to Timothy here in 2 Timothy as well. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. He's you know, talking about his persecutions before that passage. He's talking about the difficulties that he's had, and he's talking about those who are deceiving and false teachers again. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned. And then we see him saying this same thing to Titus in Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Once again, the contrast is false teachers. Paul does this twice. He does it three times if we include the two times with Timothy. False teachers contrasting that and saying, but as for you, you're something else. You're something different. So we got to think about what Pastor Dave p- preached last week. That's not us. That can't creep into here. That We can't let it be here. But as for us, and then it transitions for us a little bit, but as for you, man of God. Now, some get really t- uh, testy about this. And they say, well, this is just Timothy. Because they would say it's just Timothy because it's the only time we ever see it. In the New Testament, Timothy is literally the only guy that's ever called man of God. So you could say, well, that's not for me then. But that's not going to work. Okay, That's not going to work because we're going to see Paul using it again to Timothy, but he broadens it. But there's also another issue with that. We see this, uh, this is the, the slide that I brought. We see it 70 times in the Old Testament. Now it's Hebrew to Greek, understand that. But 70 times in the Old Testament, and it's a variety of people. As a matter of fact, here's some of the examples of it. Moses is called the man of God by Joshua. In retrospect, talking about what Moses did in his kind of final speech to them in Deuteronomy 33, and he calls him God's man, man of God, we see the angel of God that delivered the message that Samson was going to be born. She described him as the man of God, and remember, oftentimes when angels would encounter people, and maybe even still do, according to Hebrews, they look like men, but he called, she called him a man of God. The prophet Eli was warned by a man of God. We see Samuel called the man of God. So we even see Nehemiah calling David the man of God. So here's the the thing, going back a slide. The man of God in the Bible is somebody, it's a technical term, who delivers God's truth. Who speaks God's truth to the world. Who proclaims what is absolutely so according to God's will. That's what it is. So when we think of it that way, well, we can't just exclusively say it's Timothy. So let's go forward. Look at what 
2 Timothy says. Now, I know it's again to Timothy, but look at how this is worded. This is in 2 Timothy 6, if, if you want to look at this. 2 Timothy 3, excuse me, verse 16 He says this to Timothy, all scriptures God breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, I prayed this earlier, correction, training in righteousness. Notice this, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this is much broader here. He's talking to Timothy, but it's opening it wide up for anybody who's God's man, anybody who's God's woman, anybody who's God's servant, anybody who's willing to bring the truth to a dark and dying and lost world. That's what we see here. And we think of this maybe connecting it to Ephesians 4.11, where we see that you know, the, the prophets and the apostles were all are equipping the saints for what? The, they're equipping the saints for ministry. So saints all, all around, all of us, our job, we've talked about this so many times here, that our job is to bring the gospel to people. Our job is to, to bring the truth. So i got to say that I don't think we can get around the fact that we're all men and women of God if we are redeemed. That's just the way it is. Timothy has the exclusive right to say I'm the only one called that in the New Testament, but I would say you do too. Based on this, you are also what God's man is supposed to be, what God's woman is supposed to be. You're his workmanship. If we think of this in Ephesians chapter 2, this incredible passage that we look at here, it's, it's not just justification, Right, that God is sovereign and calling you to. That's true. God knew you were going to be saved before you ever were born. He knew this. Incredible. But it's your sanctification that he's sovereign over too. He's called you to what? Good works, which he prepared beforehand for you to do. There's no way you can call yourself, can't call yourself a man or woman of God unless you're in rebellion. Unless you're in rebellion. But if you're wanting to serve him, honor him, your aim is to please him, as Paul would say. You're his man. You're his woman. We're also called his ambassador. I don't want to spend too much time with this because I just covered this a couple weeks ago in Sunday school. But right in the middle, we are his ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. And notice what he says here. Let me kind of highlight this. God making his appeal through who? You, me, every other redeemer, every other man or woman of God. He's making his appeal through us. I've always found this fascinating because, of course, famously, we have this great exchange passage at the bottom. That's all about the Lord. Can you believe that he uses us? This one who is the only one worthy for the great exchange. You gave him your sin. He gave you his righteousness. And he still wants to use you. I don't know if you looked in the mirror lately. You're still a sinner. And so am I. I mean, I'm unperfected and I'm not glorified, and yet he still makes his appeal through me. It's pretty heady. It's, it's an honor, but we're his ambassadors, and he makes his appeal through us. We know Romans 10, again, I used this a couple of weeks ago, so I just wanted to bring it back because I just love how the Holy Spirit connects lessons to us. There's got to be people who are going to go take the gospel to the world. That's got to be you. That's got to be me. It's not going to be some professor in some college somewhere. It's going to be you. It's going to be you in your cul-de-sac, in your job, in your family. Those are the toughest ones, by the way, I would say. Probably the family's the toughest ones. But look at this, right in the middle of verse 15. Again, I don't want to belabor this, but how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I don't know about you, but I want God to describe my feet as beautiful. My wife wouldn't always describe my feet as beautiful, but my Savior will because I'm going to bring the good news. Uh, and it's because you haven't seen my feet that you don't think that that's, that's clever. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is, this is our call. This is what we are. We're his ambassador. All right, so let's get back to the text, back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. What comes next? You see, there's so many good things in here. He says, flee these things. We're like three words in. You're thinking, you'll never do it. We're going to do it. Flee what things? Flee what things? He says, flee these things. Well, the stuff from last week. These things, these doctrines that I talked about earlier. The pride, the conceit, the blasphemy, the false teaching, the greed, the friction, all the stuff that divides believers, churches, people who are supposed to be out there with their beautiful feet preaching the good news together right? That's what we're talking about here. We flee these things. That's what he's talking about. But you'll notice I put this, and you've heard me teach this before. I call this the Joseph tactic. What are you talking about? Well, my students would know. Immediately when I say, well, what's the Joseph tactic? They say, you run. 
when temptation is there. You don't stick around. And this is the greatest advice I can give to a teenager, especially when it comes to sexual and temptation. Just get out of there. Don't hang around it. Don't dance with it. Don't think, I can be strong. I'm, I'm mentally capable of, no, just get out of there. The Joseph tactic is simple. What did Joseph do? He fled and got out of the house. He didn't hang around it. Flee from these things is not the only time we see it is here. And it's not only sexual sin, although we see that. We see this in many places. Paul says this again in 2 Timothy. Flee youthful passions. We are to be mature as Christians. We're maturing as Christians. Sanctification, as I mentioned, progressive sanctification, is not stagnant. It's not once. It's continual. These youthful passions, we can't continue in them. We pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. We're going to see the same things here in 1 Timothy 6. We just haven't gotten there yet. These fruit of the Spirit. Notice, Pastor, I didn't say fruits of the Spirit. You could, what was the fee for that back in the day? Like there was a penalty if you said fruits of the Spirit up here. It was a dollar, yeah. That's what I heard. I had said that. He actually didn't charge me the dollar, but he told me about it later on. There could be that. It's fruit of this, because it all comes from the Holy Spirit. All of it does. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee from idolatry. So we flee from these things. Well, what does that mean practically? It's a discipline. It's active, right? So when we flee from something, we're taking action. We're doing something that is physically changing what we were doing before. It's kind of like repentance. You're going this way, now you're going that way. Now we know the Holy Spirit does that in our life. We know that that change happens because God gives us a new heart. But we also know this about we as believers, right? Every day we got to make choices to be holy or not. Got to make choices to either follow his word or follow our will. It's a daily fight. This is why Christ says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And sometimes it hurts and sometimes it's difficult. But notice these are action words here. Abstain from evil, every form of evil. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Submit yourself. Resist. These are physical things that you're going to do, disciplines that you're going to have in your life because it's necessary. Now, we know as a body of believers here that this is true. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've pointed at that. I love the fact that that's there. I wish it were everywhere because it is amazing that we're reminded of that. We're not saved because we resist and put to death and abstain. Because we're saved, we abstain, we put to death, and we submit, right? That's the, that's the idea that we want to get across. That's the Joseph tactic here. Okay, now the, the second piece to this. Let's continue reading again. Okay, so we pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the fruit of the Spirit. They come out in our life. Don't want to spend too much time. But then he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of eternal life. Once again, a person could chicken peck this out of the passage and say, oh, well, I got to earn it. I have to take hold of eternal life. I have got to do something to save myself. There are people who would do that. We're not going to do that here. We clearly know that that's not how that works. But what does this mean? What are we going to take apart from this? Well, what are we pursuing and what are we taking hold of? What are these connections? Well, you see what we're pursuing. These really look close to some of the passages we've already looked at before. They look close to the fruit of the Spirit. We're pursuing this for the purpose of being a better example, for the purpose of the gospel. If we remember Christ's words from Mark, the reason why He's not going to do that. That, that, that. That's not you. You're not going to be like that because you need to be about the kingdom. Or if you remember Christ's work, words, it's kingdom stuff. This is kingdom stuff. Acting like this is kingdom stuff. My wife and I were having a conversation on the way in. We have a long drive, so we have long conversations. And um, we were talking about somebody that we encountered, and we were just kind of taking it personally and, and saying, well, what would we do? What should we do in a situation like this? And, and I think the statement was made, we made a statement similar to this, is that anytime I don't get my way, my temptation is to get real selfish and real angry and really unkind. That's just my instinct. It's just, if I don't get my way, and I mean, at 48 years old, that's still the way I act like a two-year-old. But when I don't, right? When this kind of thing happens in my life, when I don't get my way, whatever that level is, that's not me. 
It's the Holy Spirit doing that. The peace I have in is, is that I'm letting him. I'm not, I'm not resisting him this time. But every time I have that selfish reaction to I don't get my way, whatever that level is, that's me. That's not the Holy Spirit working in me. That's me resisting him. That's that choice I make. That's what I pursue. Again, it's an action. It's an active word. I pursue it. I go after it. God gave us his word, and it's so, so rich. There's so much depth to it because he wants you to intentionally read it each day and apply it each day. You know, most of you realize I teach teenagers for a living, and I have parent-teacher conferences every so often. Every time, you know, the grades come up, what can they do to improve their grade? And I always get them back to, it's not so much the grade. What we need to figure out is how to improve them in the hallway. That's what we want to talk about. It's, it's not so much, did they get an A on that test? Did they actually take what they learned and do it? See, that's what it's about. God's not going to look at our scorecards at the end and say, ooh, how many memori- verses did they memorize at the end? Uh, did, did, they, did they get all these answers right when pastor asked them the question? That's not how it's going to be. How did they take it to the streets? That's exactly what we're seeing here. So our walk matters. Ephesians chapter 4, notice what Paul says here to the church in Ephesus. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of what? This calling. This calling. Now this is an affectional calling of salvation. There's no way to look beyond that. But there's, a, there's an extended thing here. Your calling is then to be the ambassador too. Right? You were created for, for God's glory, not your own. We remember what we were told in Ephesians that we're his workmanship, but the calling is salvation. When you think of it this way, our walk makes a difference. Humility, gentleness, notice the same words here. You see this? It's the same list. Consistently, we see this all over Scripture, that when we pursue God's way, this stuff comes out. This is when the Holy Spirit's going to break us, and he's going to start doing the things and surprise people. You don't get your way, and you still act kindly. You, you still act patiently. You're, you're still acting with love. You're bearing with one. You're humble. That's not my instinct. It's not mine. It's the Lord's. Philippians 1, we see, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I love the way Paul puts it here to the church in Philippi. Worthy of the gospel. Wow. When you start thinking about that, we're going to break that down here in a little bit later. Think about what Christ did. The gospel is him being crucified on a Roman cross for your sin and mine. Remember what you gave him? You gave him all your sin. Great deal. That righteousness came because of the sacrifice. There is no remission of sin without, without the shedding of blood. And it's some serious shedding of blood. A manner worthy of that. Every time we take the elements here, that should be coming to mind, right? That should help you hit the reset button. Certainly does me. It's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to be in the presence of other believers and to feel that. I hope you feel that. I certainly feel that. It's a humbling experience, and well, it should be. We're so unworthy of it. But we live a life thinking of that. That's in the back of our head. We're considering that all the time. And then finally, we're here with our walk, taking hold of eternal life. So we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So often for me, I don't know about you, when we think about, and I just wanted to give you all of the context here. It's so good. I just don't have time to go through all of it. Man, the temptation to please men over pleasing the Lord is right there all the time. It could be your boss. It could be your spouse. It could be your mother, your father, your kids. That's not the standard. The standard is pleasing him right here, not pleasing the person next to you. Now, if you please him and it doesn't please the person next to you, find new friends. But if it pleases him and it pleases them, you're in a body of believers then. We're unified in the truth, right? His will, our will should match up. That's what we should see. And then when we see this, he charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom. We're going to talk a little bit about his, his coming back, his appearing, his, his second advent. When we think about this kingdom that's coming, we think about what Christ told, this is not you, you're about the kingdom. This is the way we should think as well. So taking hold of eternal life, I've always thought of this phrase as being having your mind set on things above. I almost interchanged those. When I read that, that's the first verse that came to mind. That's what I think about, is that you set your mind on those things, kingdom things, eternal things. Any of you who have lost loved ones, and I've lost one recently, but many of you have, so many of you have, 
As a matter of fact, I can't imagine that there's anybody in here who hasn't. Well, you think about heaven a whole lot more. It's interesting. I have recordings of my dad singing. He was a singer. His, his, he, he was talented. He went from church to church. He was a farmer, but he was very gifted when it came to uh, uh, doing solos. People wanted him to come and just sing at their service or wedding or funeral, whatever it might be. And he, he did this until the day he died. But fortunately, many of these are recorded, and they come up on my on my uh, uh, mp3 player and, and they come up in the car and oftentimes he'll say something in front of that and so, uh, that count, goes with the song he was singing and when I think of that and my dad would oftentimes say and he would often talk about this one time he, he there's the recording from 1973 and my grandmother had just no it's 1975 my grandmother had just passed away and he said, it had just happened a month ago, he said, it's interesting when you have somebody who you love that you know is in Christ, and they, they go to be with the Lord, boy, you just feel like you're just one little step closer, because you know that there is a fellow believer, and if it's a family member, somebody you love and are intimate with, that you're close with, that you know they're seeing the glories of the Lord, you know they're in paradise, you know that peace is overwhelming them. And you just feel like, and I've got a hand in that. They're close to me. And I think that happens. We have that eternal perspective. Those are things that are above. But it's not just heaven. When we think about things that are above, we have to go back to the, the concept of the fruit of the Spirit. The things that are above are kingdom things, things that set us apart. So remember, this is all about contrast tonight. Last week, that's the things of the world. That's the way the world works greed, pride, conceit, my own ideas, my own will, splitting apart, wanting money, all these things, that's not us. Our mind are on things that are above, not on things that are earth. And notice it's because we're different now, not just in the future. We're already seated in heavenly places right now. So that's what taking hold of eternal life, our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, so when we contrast, this is a contrasting verse. Notice this one. Many of whom I have often told you, now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. He's talking about people who have walked away from the faith, who we thought were amongst us, as First John would talk about. But that's not true. They weren't really amongst us. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. It just means pleasure. Their glory is their shame. Their mind set on earthly things. But our citizenship's in heaven. It's kingdom stuff. It's future. It's we're working for something else. And notice we're going to get to this verse again. I'm going to bring it back up just to remind you of the connections. We await a Savior from this place. And then finally here, to which you were called. I talked about this earlier, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. You're called to be saints. Uh, Pastor Dave's talked about it. Pastor Kevin's talked about it up here. You're not a saint because you performed a miracle and the Catholic Church has decided that you did enough to earn sainthood after your death and now people can pray to you. That, that's nonsense. Sorry to offend anybody that might be listening to this from our Catholic churches out there. But that's not the case. You're a saint the moment you're saved. You're a saint the moment you're redeemed. The moment Jesus changes you into something else. You're different and you're a saint. You're called to that. And there is, uh, there is an honor to it. Notice that it's called to be saints, grace and to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in his introduction in Romans 1. And then notice Ephesians 1, another introductory speech, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that happened because of your faith, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What we've been talking about. You've been called to this now, and notice again, the saints. You're, you're in a different league. So going back to that, could this just be to Timothy? Is he the man of God? No, no, it's all of us. Anybody who's in Christ, this is to us. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big title. You're a saint. You've been set apart for special work. And, and because of that, there's something special for you to do. All right, the good confession. What is the good confession? Back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here's what it says. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Well, apparently, he confessed something to other people that were witnesses to it. Now, we get a little insight. Now, we don't have the actual passage where where we hear that, that Timothy makes this great proclamation that he loves Christ, that he's put his faith in Christ, that Jesus saved him, he's getting baptized. We don't have that. Here's what we do have. We have a couple things about Timothy that we know were public. 
Pastor covered this a few weeks ago here, and he's made mention of it before. But there's a couple passages here, this good confession, and we see Christ making a good confession. But here's what it is. We see that he was handpicked, just like what we've been talking about, just like you, by the way. Do not neglect the gift you have, which we got to assume is teaching, preaching. Pastor made mention of that. I agreed with him. It's got to be that. Leading a congregation or certainly just having the ability to articulate and proclaim the truth. Many of you have that without being pastors, which was given you by prophecy. Now, that's special. I didn't get the, the gift of teaching by prophecy, but it happened to him when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, that was public. There were people there. He made a pro- I'm certain he would have said something in that scenario, and he would have made a confession of the faith. We see a very similar thing here in 2 Timothy 1. We see a reference to his grandmother and mother in this context, by the way, in 2 Timothy 1, who raised him up in this. But notice, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of many hands. And in 2 Timothy, we see that he says, I know that this is true of you. So he had to have these conversations with Paul. Certainly he would have had conversations publicly. Certainly because we understand his gift, he would have had the gift to teach and preach. This is something that's been confessed publicly. Now, how does this relate to me and you? Well, you need to talk about what you believe. Sorry. That's the way it goes. This isn't something where you get to have a private, it's just me, God is so good to me, but I'm not going to tell anybody because it's not my gift. Sorry, that's just not going to work out. And you might say, that's easy for you. You're standing up there yelling. You're loud and bold and all that. And No, it doesn't matter. See, you're going to encounter people that I won't, Pastor Kevin won't, Pastor Dave won't, any of the other elders and teachers here won't ever see, but you will. You'll encounter them, you'll know them, and you're called to this to make a public confession. Now, this means certainly in public, in a church setting, and that's why it's such a beautiful thing when we have, our our last baptismal service was fantastic. Any of you who were here, what an impact that made when people confessed their faith in Jesus publicly. I used the recording of that for one of my students because it just connected with this young girl's life. This was a big deal because that's what a confession does. And that wasn't easy for all those people to do. But that was so important. And if I were having personal conversations, I would guess you'd agree with me what an impact that was that day. And that, that happens every time. That's the importance of the confession. Notice what Jesus says about this. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father in heaven. Jesus puts a premium on this. This isn't the only time he says this, by the way. He puts a premium on you being bold enough to proclaim his name. Puts a premium on it. Thinks it's important. Notice what we see in Romans 10 going back there again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this isn't a formula. The formula is Jesus saved you. There's your formula. You heard the gospel, you responded, and God did that to you. But See, there's an expectation that you're going to confess this. You're going to proclaim this because you won't have any choice. The way Paul puts it is he's got this like um, divine compulsion. He has to preach the gospel. There's like a weight on him. You ought to feel that weight. And, And responding to what you understand about the sacrifice that was made certainly will help you do that. But this is a heart and action, heart and mind, heart and voice type of situation here. We confess this. This makes a difference. Romans 10 is for you. It's not just for preachers, teachers. It's for everybody. And this is the public profession of Christ, the good confession. Well, what makes it good? It's the only one, right? It's the only one that saves. There's nothing else that I know of that is categorically called the good news. Why is it good? Because everything else is bad. It's the only answer we have. The good news, and you get, you get to be the ambassador. He uses you. Through you, he's bringing this incredible news. Let's go to Jesus' confession of this. Go to John 18, 33. Let's take a look at this real quick. John 18. This is the part Dave's, Pastor Dave's envious of, I'm sure. And I agree with him. It's such an interesting thing to look at. But you've probably heard him teach on this as well. And he's got some great ideas on what maybe is going on in the mind of Pilate. And who knows, right? 
Who knows? He is typically cast as a villain in most movies, and he certainly is to a degree, as we all are, right? We're all the villain. There's only one hero in this story, and it isn't any of us. But it is interesting to consider this conversation in the perspective. Jesus speaks to him more directly than he does to anybody else in any of the other trials. Uh, The rest of them were Jewish leaders that should have known better, and he told them so many times. But when it comes to Pilate, uh, somebody maybe like us, he's a Gentile. Here's what the conversation looks like. So you should be in 18, Jesus before Pilate. We're going to pick this up. Verse 33 says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Like, did you come up with this on your own? I think he's being honest with him. Or did, did, did you get this from other people? Do you know about me? Do you know, is this in your heart? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have, I, what have, what have you done? He says, like, well, I don't get what's going on here. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't deny a kingdom, by the way. Didn't deny an earthly kingdom either, by the way. He's denying that the kingdom is coming to destroy the Roman government right then. That's what was going to get Pilate interested. Am I going to try to, is this guy going to try to overthrow me? Is there something about that? But that's not what he was about. And I think we know that that's not the discussion for tonight. But it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, and I love this part. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Like, yes, I am. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Does that give you chills when you hear that? Let me read it again. You need to get some chills. To bear witness to the truth, I was born for this. He knew what he was facing. Crucifixion, horrific way to die. Agony comes from this. The word we consider as agony. He knew what was coming. I was born for this. To bear witness to the truth. And remember what he said? He's going to make his appeal through you in light of the gospel. This is what I wanted you to think about. Jesus knew what he was about. He knew exactly what he was about, what he was born for. And then this beautiful thing that we're going to see in 1 John again. He says this, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's you if you're in Christ. You know, you connect. You you got the chills because, yes, my Savior came for this. He came for the truth. He doesn't sweat any of this. That's the good confession right there. That I came to live a perfect life, fulfill every prophecy that had anything to do with my first advent, more than we even know, by the way. Wouldn't you love to have been on the road to Emmaus with those two apostles, two disciples, rather? I'd love to put in the heavenly DVD someday and see that one. And just, of course, I don't need to. I'll be with the Savior. But just imagine what he showed them that we missed, that we have always missed. I think Paul's helped us out a little bit, but I'll bet there was some stuff Paul didn't even see. Anyway, incredible. He came and fulfilled all those prophecies, lived a perfect life, became that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, just like John called it, offers his own life up on this whole, in this horrific way. Three days later, is walking around, proclaiming the kingdom, teaching his apostles for 40 days. You believe on that. That incredible, ridiculous, and just earth-shaking, earth-rattling thing. You're saved because he did that for you. That's the, that's the confession. Jesus makes it here. I was born for this. And those who listen to my truth, they're all about this. They know me. That's the good confession. Do you conf- I know him. I know this guy. This, this is my Savior. This is my King. That's the, my confession. I know him. I, I'm with him. I'm in that conversation, and I'm like, yes, yes, his kingdom's coming. So what, is it, what do we see in his confession? He confesses that he is king with a kingdom, and it's coming like a freight train. I've told you that before. So get on board. Don't get run over. Christ confirms that he is his servants. We're his servants. If he asks, we'll accomplish his will, even if it's hard. They'd rise up for me right now if I asked them to. It's not their time. We do hard things for him. He's making his appeal through you. He says this. That's his confession here. He claims that he was born for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is 
the Messiah, the chosen one. That's the truth. And he identifies his true followers are those who listen to his voice. We listen to his voice. That's the, tr- the good confession. So back to you, back to me. Hmm. John brings it back to us. First John chapter 2. Go to First John with me. I don't have time, but I want you to do it anyway. First John chapter 2. Because we're going to go to 1 John 2 and then 1 John 4. I just love the way that John puts this because this is that good confession. And remember what Jesus said? Those who are, are with me, those who are considering this, they listen to my voice. Those who are of the truth, that's ex- exactly what John says. So if we go to 1 John, we'll take a look at this. And again, 1 John is another fascinating passage or book that we see, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, just knowing that this is the last of the apostles writing any epistles outside of his writing of Revelation. This just kind of gives us a retrospect. He's looking back on years of the church, and he's probably the only one left standing. But if we're in 1st John chapter 2, should have enough time there. Picking this up in verse 23, here's what he says. John talking about this concept, and he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Knows us confess. Notice that. You confess it. You believe it. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. I don't know when you got saved. I don't know when you heard the gospel the first time. For me, I was a little boy. And it's abided in me because Jesus saved me, and he doesn't lose one. And he didn't lose me. And he hasn't lost you. But man, we got to re-preach. We say this a lot. We got to re-preach the gospel to ourselves. Remember, remember that first love. Remember what happened to you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Amazing, right? Because you believe him. You believe the truth and he abides in you. Now skip over to verse chapter 4, same book, chapter 4. I just want you to see it in the context of it all. Spending a little more time, starting in verse 11 for this one. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Back to the unity, back to the idea. But not for you, man of God, that's not how you are. No one has ever seen God, and we're going to see this later on. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Notice this. Seen and testify. You say, well, I didn't see it. Yeah, you're not an apostle. I'll give you that. True. There were only 12, we'll call it 13, if you include Paul and maybe another 14 with Matthias. There's not many of them. But you have experienced salvation, have you not? You can testify to that. That's what testimony is all about. You understand what's true. You understand what happened. You can confess that that's what happened to you. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that. Remember what Jesus said. It's even more blessed for those who don't see me and believe. That's what he tells Thomas. That's you. That's me. We're in the same category. You're not, you don't have to be an apostle to fulfill this. He is the Son of God, and God abides in him and he in God. So, When we think about this, and we think about this, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Our confession matters. It makes a difference. Your good confession. They connect. What Jesus confesses, you confess. You believe the truth that he came for, that he was born for. That's what you're about. And then this beautiful thing, his appearing. Now, we know what it says back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you go back there with me, 1 Timothy 6 We know that there's a motivation here. In the middle of the passage, we see motivation. I like motivation. I kind of miss the days where I had a coach yelling in my ear, telling me how worthless I was, get up, do it harder, faster. I remember that. There was something to that. Now, that's not what God does with us. He doesn't do that. He gives us a carrot sometimes. And this is a beautiful carrot. Look at 614 if you're back there with me. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6, the good confession, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and in Christ Jesus who in the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. You keep his commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, until he appears. Any of you know when he's coming? If 
one of you raised your hand, we would have to have an elder meeting right now and figure this out. No, we don't know because no man knows the day or the hour. Okay? We know that this is true, that we don't know when this is. God did that on purpose. He doesn't want you to know. He wants you to work to the very end. If, he, if you knew it was next week, maybe if you knew it was two years from now, maybe if you knew it was 100 years from now, you might take your foot off the gas a little bit. He doesn't want you to do that. Unstained till the very end, keeping his commandments to the very end, free from reproach until the very end, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a connection here when we look at these passages that we looked at before. We'll look at different parts of that. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the motivation? Well, he's going to transform these lowly bodies to be like his glorious one. That's a good one. I like that one. I love the fact that I'm going to wear this one out for his glory, for his kingdom. Going to keep pressing on. People ask about retirement. That is not going to happen. And I'm not talking about you stopping this job and going to another. You can't retire either. You can stop being a mechanic, but you're going to proclaim the name of Jesus if you're a believer until the day you die. We don't retire from this. We wear ourselves out doing this. These are already been brought up. Notice this. When Christ, who is your life, appears. I brought up these passages before. I just didn't show you these parts. He's your life. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Motivation, because you're all about it. Remember what Christ's good confession was. Man, those that know the truth, they hear my voice. They know me, and they're going to serve me and do what I tell them. If I asked them, they'd raise up right now. Is that you? Is that me? Is that our motive? When we think about the fact that we're going to see him at some point. Now, we just talked about him coming in, you know, years and 100 years. What if it's tonight? What if it's tomorrow? Think about that motivation. It could be any time. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is this? Training us to renounce. Un- so notice the activity again. Action again. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled. And when we think about self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, it's, as we're waiting, it's not like we sit there and wait. The concept here and the context here, when we look at this, The waiting is we're doing these things as we look forward to the return of Christ. Not sitting there waiting, doing nothing. The rest of this stuff wouldn't be in here if we were just supposed to sit back and keep it to ourselves. Notice all this stuff here has to do with living out the Christian walk as we wait. It's not waiting in just anticipation doing nothing. It's waiting because the blessed hope is coming. This great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Incredible stuff when we think about this. It's a motivation for holiness. That's what we're called to. But he's a judge. That's more motivation. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, This year in our chapels, we went through different aspects of God's character. And um, some of them were tougher for kids to hear. Jesus being the judge was a tough one. Jesus being their loving Savior, they loved that one. Grace is easy to teach. Judgment's not so easy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And by the way, that's believers and non-believers. We have different judgments. Ours is on our work and reward, but no doubt about it, there's judgment. Later on in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, everybody who's longed for his appearing. He's going to bring his recompense to those to those who, he, who have served him. That's what we see in Revelation 22. Paul mentions it again, the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to reveal the, the heart, why we do what we do, to, see, to receive what is, is done in the body. So we see this is without question a motivation. Motivation to live holy, but a motivation knowing you're going to face him someday. You're going to face this one who was standing in front of Pilate giving that good confession that was talking about you. Because you hear his voice and you believe his truth. He, he had you in mind. He had you in mind in John 17. He had you in mind when he was talking to Thomas. He knows you because he called you before you were born, before the creation of the world. Just think about that. And this is how we ought to live our life with him. And then it says this, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says this, to keep his commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. At the proper time. So we don't know when Christ is going to return. We didn't know when he was going to come the first time. Now, they had a pretty good idea based on Daniel's prophecy, and some knew. 
Anna had an idea. I think we can look at that. Simeon had an idea. He, he knew it was close. They didn't know exactly, but it was just the right time, wasn't it? And how about you personally? Did he save you at just the right time? You bet he did. And that's different for every one of your testimonies. But man, at just the right time, when you were weak, you had no way to save yourself. You came to the end of yourself. You were at the end of yourself, and there Jesus showed up. But God, full in mercy, that's you at just the right time. Well, when he comes back, it's going to be just the right time. And he told his apostles this more than one time. It's not for you to know the time and the epochs. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. You need to get about the business of preaching the gospel. Remember what happens after Acts chapter 1. He's telling them to be ready because Pentecost is coming. The Holy Spirit's coming. I'm going to bring you that paraclete that's going to help you do my work. There's work to be done. But we don't know this, but it's going to be at just the right time. And let's land the plane here. We've got six minutes-ish. This, this is um, some incredible writing here. If we look at this again and we consider who it is we're dealing with. Now try to wrap all this up into a bow here for us. Nice little, we consider all of what God just commanded us to do, why he's commanded us to do it, but then he really starches us at the end. Paul reminds us of who it is that we are actually serving. And that really helps the, for us, I think it should help us to get a better grasp about who you are and who he is, what that motivates you to do. Let's take a look at the text. Starting again at verse um, 15 which he will display at the proper time. That could happen at any moment. His appearing, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. Now, before I continue, this is the father he's talking about. You're going to see some connections to the son as we go forward, and that shouldn't surprise you. Father and son are one, along with the Holy Spirit. But you're going to hear some things that you normally hear about Christ. The blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. is talking about the father who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, to whom no one has ever seen or can see. It's clearly the Father we're talking about him. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. All right, so we got some good stuff in here. This is the text. Notice what we're going to look here right at the beginning. Blessed and only sovereign. Blessed and only sovereign. Then we'll get to the King of kings and Lord of lords, which you're much more familiar with. But blessed here... Makarus, makarios, to be envied or to be honored, to be set apart, to be elevated. Okay, that's blessed, separated, different. Something to be envied or honored. Only Christ, only God rather, the Father and Christ along with him could be possibly in this. And then only sovereign. When we look at this, dunastis, this is, and monos, the only, it actually, or alone he has. He's the only one who could have it. It's the only possible solution for this word. And dunastos, dunastos is this all-powerful, all-ruler, and look at this, look at this definition, who has the ability to truly govern with authority by his own will. The own will part is really important when we compare him to any human king. We know, we know, according to Daniel, how do kings get lifted up and how do they get taken down? By God's hand. The good ones and the bad ones. Presidents, prime ministers, dictators, you name it. They're only there because God allows it. He tells Pilate that very thing, doesn't he? You can only have power that you've been given from above. That's the only reason. God alone, by his own will, exercises authority to do whatever he pleases. That's in your life and that's in my life. The sovereignty of God is probably beyond our understanding because we want to hold and control things, don't we? We really do. We want to feel like we have some control. When you really think about the chaos of the world, you don't really want that, I don't think. I don't. I want to have a God who cares and knows and is good and is perfect and isn't nearly as twisted as I am that's in control. But that's what sovereign is. That's what it looks like. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16, we see a couple parallel verses here when we indicate that when we look at the King of Kings and Lord of Lords part, because I know you're immediately thinking Christ. This is talking about the Father, but they are one. We know that Jesus is referenced as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords twice near the end of Revelation. So we see this, they will make war, speaking of the Antichrist and his, his armies and, uh, and others, will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For he's the Lord of lords and King of kings. Same phrase, same thing, same Greek, as a matter of fact. 
And, and notice, and those who with him are called chosen and faithful. Because you know his voice and you buy the truth and you're in. Because that's your savior. That's your king. How personal is that? And then Revelation 19, on his robe as he comes back, and you with him, by the way, on his robe and his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What is that telling us? Well, it's telling us that those two are connected. The Father and the Son are connected. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's Christ's own words. But look at this unapproachable light. We've got a little bit of a paradox here because the Old Testament clearly tells us we cannot see the Father and live. We can't. Can't see the Father. Can't look upon the Father and live. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. See the same thing here in John 5, 37. And 1 John makes mention of it. I, I had it up earlier that you can't see the face of the, the Father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, and his form you have never seen. That's, that, you can't. So what's the trouble? What's, what's the issue for us? I mean, we got this in here. We, we know this is true. This is the God that we serve. But we got to bring this back around to Christ. Jesus and the Father are one. He is your advocate. He is your high priest. He is your link. It's impossible to not see the connections and the symbolic nature of the veil being torn in two from top to bottom. You just can't miss it. I teach the seventh graders about the Old Testament and the symbolic nature of the tabernacle and the temple. And we always bring this around. It kind of, hopefully it doesn't blow your mind, but it does theirs. That we now have access to the Father because of the Son. That that is happening because of the Son. And notice Jesus is saying, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. This is important. God of the universe became flesh, took on flesh for our sins, for us. And then notice he, he connects all this. He gives us access. I love Ephesians 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. You Gentiles, so far off even on the other side of the world that they didn't even know existed at the time. Jesus did. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access, Jews and Gentiles alike. The people who heard him in their day and 2,000 years later alike. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with saints, members of the household of God. And then look at this. And we'll end here. Hebrews 4. Pastor went through this when we were going through Hebrews Look at this confidence that we get to have. But we can't get to the confidence without verse 15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. This incredible, powerful, unapproachable God loves you personally. Cares about you personally. And he knows your life and cares about your life and the struggles and the difficulties, the pains, the suffering, all of it. He knows it all. And he still chose you. And he still wants to make his appeal through you. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, if that's true, this powerful God took on flesh, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. He had you in mind. He had you in mind. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. There's a lot of words that maybe the author of Hebrews could have used here. The Holy Spirit made him say the throne of grace. Reminding us that this isn't because of your effort, and it isn't because of your will. It's because of him. And what he's done, that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, so that you can continue to do your work, so that all that we've learned tonight is still true. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. We boast in the Lord and we serve him boldly. We come confidently to this unapproachable light because we look at the Son and the, the Father looks at us through the Son. Beautiful thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this incredible text. The depths of it could have spent hours more, but we thank you for the time that we do have to, to, to look at this. The reminder for us that we're not like that, but as for us, men and women of God, you've told us tonight, we're different. We're a different type of person. We should be obviously different than the world, but we should even want to elevate ourselves and elevate our walk better than what we were yesterday. That we look at ourselves and say, I'm not like I was yesterday even. I was walking with him then, but now I'm more like him now because that's the way sanctification should work. Lord, I pray that that happens in all of us and that we don't resist it, that we continue to let you, let you do this work in us that you will do, that you will do through us. I pray that we not get in the way, but that we also become these incredible uh, examples of ambassadors for the kingdom that is coming. 
Lord, you're coming soon. I pray to tonight, Maranatha, maybe tonight. And if that be the case, this next Wednesday night service will be awesome because we'll be in your presence. But if not, give us the grit that we need to do what you've just called us to, to live lives that are holy and separate, pleasing to you, lives that are different, that are impacting the world around us so that we make the good confession just like you've made and we connect ourselves to you and that every time we do this, we know it pleases you. I pray that we do that and that be our goal this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.